The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We come now to the midpoint in this study on the book of Hebrews as we explore the supremacy and superiority of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and the anchor for our souls. In our passage this morning, we focus on the unique and dual role of Jesus as our King and our priest after the order of Melchizedek. In our government, we do not let the president serve on the Supreme Court to preserve checks and balances of power. But in God's government, all authority rests on the shoulders of the Son, who is our ultimate head, judge, and representative before God. Please follow as I read Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 14. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and whose descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commendation in the law, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers." though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the, one, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was ascended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ancient Israel had three main leadership roles, prophet, priest, and king. God, in his wisdom, distributed his gifts and these responsibilities as a kind of separation of power so that no one man would fulfill more than one office. We recall how King Saul was severely punished for usurping the role of priest by failing to be patient, waiting for the prophet Samuel. Samuel and Moses come closest to fulfilling more than one role in Israel, having led Israel as prophets and serving in a kind of priestly or kingly fashion at times. But this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who appears once in Genesis 14 and is referred to in Psalm 110, he stands out as a priest and king. And through those dual roles, he points forward to Jesus, who was acknowledged as a prophet during his lifetime, but not fully embraced as priest and king until after his death and resurrection. I want to approach our text this morning with three questions. Who was Melchizedek? And why is his order greater than the Levitical priesthood? And then thirdly, why do we need a new priesthood? And as we explore these questions, I believe they'll shed light on the fact that Jesus, our priestly king, reigns and intercedes with peace, power, and perfection. So who was Melchizedek? Well, he is introduced as the king of Salem, the ancient name of Jerusalem, and he is priest of God Most High, who met and blessed Abraham as he returned from his rescue mission to deliver Lot out of the hands of marauding kings. The name Salem comes from the Hebrew word for peace, and that is what good kings desire, peace. They are not war mongers. They are not bloodthirsty men, but desire the peace and the prosperity of their people. Now, Israel's peak of peace and prosperity came during the reign of King Solomon, whose name also means peace. Because of that, in Solomon, both foreshadow the prince of priests, the prince of peace who was prophesied by Isaiah, who was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, who is credited with establishing the Pax Romana, the Roman peace across the Roman Empire, a time of unity, growth, and flourishing. Now, Melchizedek's name also means king of righteousness. So he is not only a king of peace, he is a righteous king who feared the Lord, who provided safe passage for Abram, who was honored by Abraham in favor and in rejection of the wicked king of Psalm through whom Abraham refused to form an alliance. Now it's the job of kings to promote and to preserve righteousness, to enforce the law, to vindicate the innocent, to condemn the wicked, and to remove evildoers from the land. But it's the job of priests to promote righteousness through teaching, through 
modeling righteousness and godliness and through offering proper sacrifices to God. We can only imagine the fear and trepidation of Abraham as he and some 300 men chased down four kings and their armies to make a surprise attack by night. By faith, Abraham rescued Lot. By faith, he had left his homeland to enter into a foreign country by the command of God. And by faith, with true fear and trembling, he obeyed the command of God to offer up his son Isaac on an altar at Mount Moriah. And we can only imagine the relief and the peace Abraham felt as an angel cried out, Stop! Indicating that he had passed the test, demonstrating his loyalty and faith to the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Abraham was considered righteous by his faith. And through him and through his association with Melchizedek, point forward to the true peace and righteousness that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. We gain peace when we embrace Jesus as our priestly king. As king, Jesus makes peace by de- destroying our enemies. We live in a threatened, threatening, hostile world with persecution and intimidation. But we have a reigning king who brings justice and righteousness. And as priest, Jesus gives us peace with God. He reconciles us with a holy God by taking our place, by bearing the punishment that you and I deserve. You see, on the cross took place the great exchange where on Jesus was laid our sin, and in return he gave us his righteousness. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this peace and this righteousness that Jesus gives us meets us in our times of insecurity. When we are filled with anxiety, when we are restless, and he offers a true and lasting peace, not a peace man kind of hippie peace, but a peace that has substance. He says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Now, it's been suggested that this Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that he's without father and mother and genealogy, neither without beginning or end, but resembling the Son of God, and so continues as priest forever. I don't believe Melchizedek was the second person of the Trinity. I believe he was a historic figure in maybe a long line of priest kings in Salem, He's a man who obviously feared God, who recognized God's blessing upon Abram. But the language in Hebrews indicates, uh, is emphasizing the fact that we know nothing about his, his heritage, his lineage, his ancestry, that he just appears, appears out of nowhere and he disappears, no mentioning to the end of his life or his priesthood. And it's in that, that manner that he offers us a kind of foreshadowing of Christ. Even the text says that he resembles the Son of God. And God uses him to provide an order, a priestly order outside of the line of Levi. 
He represents a priesthood that is prior to and greater than the Levitical priesthood, which was never meant to be eternal. So why is this order, this priestly order, and the order of Melchizedek greater than the Levitical priesthood? Well, we know that Israelite priests all came from the line of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, and they come through Aaron, the brother of Moses. We also know that the line of kings came through the tribe of Judah. And the author here wants us to see how great Melchizedek was as king and as priest of God Most High, who was worthy of Abraham's tithe, a tenth of the spoils of battle. The tithe was actually pretty common in the ancient world, where armies would come back from victory and offer a tenth to their gods, thanking them for their victory. And of false gods, the false gods of the pagans are worthy of a tithe. How much more is the true God worthy of our tithes and our offerings? But the author of Hebrews here makes much of Melchizedek's greatness. Having received a tithe from Abram, and in a manner of speaking, Levi, and all of the priests that came afterwards who were in the loins of Abram. Now, lineage is not necessarily a big deal for us in our day and age, but was quite important for the Jews who wanted to verify the true descendants of Aaron, only of whom could serve legitimately as priest. Not just any man from any tribe could serve as a priest in Israel. And though Jesus is not of the line of Levi, the author indicates that that doesn't matter because Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood by the command of God. In Psalm 1.10, David speaks of his Lord, one of his own descendants, a son of David who would be a king sitting at the right hand of the Lord and yet also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews belabors this point to try to make it very clear to his Jewish audience of, uh, who would require solid biblical reasoning to accept Jesus as their high priest. Because the end of the Levitical priesthood was a big deal. So why is Jesus great as our priestly king? Well, ancient kings oftentimes would more than gladly die a glorious death in battle, whether in defense of their people, whether to pursue some ambitious conquest. But no ancient king in his right mind would willingly die the death of a common criminal. And that's what crucifixion was. It was cruel torture to bully, to intimidate, to humiliate one's enemies, to warn potential traitors against any threat or action against the power of the state. Jesus, who possessed true power, who could have easily exercised it when being tempted by the devil, when being interrogated by Pontius Pilate, refused to act in self-defense, but rather humbly submitted to the will of his Father, who his will it was to crush him, 
that he might pay the penalty for sin. You know, most kings require their subjects to make sacrifices for them. Ours makes sacrifice for us. As priest, Jesus' greatness is demonstrated by the fact that he got dirty. You ever consider how messy, how dirty, how inglorious the work of a priest was? They're handling animals and blood, lots of blood. Just imagine the smell and the gathering of flies and other critters as just blood from bulls and goats and lambs are being poured out on the altar upon the tabernacle and temple furnishings. But we are so far removed from that world. You, you can't even go to a butcher shop today does not have the blood that would have been seen on these incidents. And a priest's work never ends. The sacrifices keep coming day in, day out, week in, week out, monthly, the triannual feast and festivals of Israel. The job of making sacrifice, of cleaning up the job. And, and this was work that kings didn't do. They gave it to the priest. But Jesus, our priestly king, got dirty. He got bloody. He took on our mess. He bore our stains. He endured the unmitigated wrath of God for us. And his greatness and power is unparalleled in human history. It's been said that King George III, when he had heard that George Washington would resign his commission as commander of the Continental Army and return to Mount Vernon, King George called Washington the greatest man in the world. Great men attain power. Greater men walk away from power. But the greatest of them all, Jesus, the God-man, laid down his power and rights for a time to serve his people, to surrender his life and be raised up imperishable in full power as king of kings. Abram went in the power of God Most High to engage pagan kings in battle. Scripture tells us ultimately that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. We engage in our battles, not in our own strength, but in his power. When we acknowledge our weakness and need, King Jesus reigns even now, extending his kingdom to take back the stolen territory of the enemy. And priest Jesus has defeated the tyranny of sin and death. And so when we feel weak, powerless, and overwhelmed by temptation and circumstance, abide in him. Our priestly king who fights our battles, who prays for us and who gives strength to the weary. Lastly, why was there a need for a new priesthood? It's because there was the need for perfection before a holy God. You see, the Levitical priesthood was inadequate. It was made up of flawed and mortal men. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year to anoint 
the mercy seat of God. But he would only serve for a time, needing to pass his duties on to another. The Levitical priesthood was flawed from the very beginning. Just as the first man of the human race, Adam, failed and sent our human race spiraling into the fallenness of sin. So the first priest, Aaron, failed miserably, succumbing to the pressure and temptation to make golden calves while Moses was up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. Aaron's two sons would be consumed by the Lord for offering up unauthorized fire. Later, Ezekiel, a prophet, would rebuke the shepherds of Israel for their abuse and negligence with the sheep. In Jesus' day, the priesthood was maintained largely by the Sanhedrin, a politically motivated group of men consumed with power, prestige, and material greed. It was before this body that Jesus was falsely tried, mocked, accused, and sentenced to death by Roman execution. The Levitical priest failed to uphold God's righteousness. Their mortality failed to provide lasting intercession. Yes, there was a need for perfection and the need for a final sacrifice for sins because the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews will say, cannot take away our sins. We live in a culture that is obsessed with perfection. We are consumed with physical fitness and diets to sculpt perfect bodies. We have magazines and websites and television shows that offer us the perfect home if you make all the upgrades. Parents feel the pressure to raise perfect kids with straight A's and and excellence in sports and music and social adeptness. Social media only accelerates this artificial pressure for us to be something that we're not in our virtual selves. Perfection is literally killing us. My wife is reading the book What Made Maddie Run, a tragic story of an academic, all-American, beautiful young woman who took her own life after a year of running for a University of Pennsylvania. And this book is, it's a cry for uh, change in our mental health system. But I believe it's also an indicator, uh, cultural uh, exposure of our problem with perfectionism. People feel pressure. Pressure from others or put pressure upon themselves. And, And it's in this vein that I believe that the song by Christian singer Lauren Daigle, You Say strikes a chord not only with Christians, but with non-Christians, even being a top hit on secular radio. Her opening line says, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. And that's where many of us are. We don't feel like we are enough, not talented enough, not smart enough, not rich enough, not good-looking enough, not moral and righteous enough, feeling inept and unable to measure up to other people's standards or our own expectations. We condemn ourselves. We're our own worst critics. 
And in response to this, this self-centered tendency towards perfectionism, we need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear the Word speak to us against all the voices of our culture and in our own minds to affirm what God says. That in Christ, you are beloved. You are valued. You are redeemed. You are clean. You are righteous. You are holy. You are precious. You are perfect in my sight because I see Jesus in you. We ought to take the gospel and relieve ourselves of this burden to pursue perfection or to demand of it from our families, our employers. And we take this moment to challenge you as a congregation not to expect perfection out of a new senior pastor, nor out of his wife. I remind you that he will not walk on water. He will not turn water into wine, which will be against church policy anyway. He will not fulfill all your hopes and your dreams for what Westminster ought to be. Please show him and the other staff grace, and we will labor to do the same for one another. You know, some of us have jobs where where it's our job to make somebody look good. Think of administrators and secretaries whose job it is to make the boss look good. Well, that's what Jesus does. He makes us look good before God. And I believe that the gospel also sets us free from the fear of taking risk. Many young people are scared of marriage because of excessive expectations of of perfectionistic drive, of not being good enough or not meeting somebody that can meet all their needs. Well, the truth is, is that no one can be for you what only Jesus can be for you. He only is perfect. And you and I will only be perfect in glory. So may this truth humble us, enable us to admit our shortcomings and to Embrace the perfection that Jesus alone provides. Only Jesus makes us acceptable before a holy God. Only Jesus makes us competent as ministers and witnesses of the gospel. And the gospel sets us free. The gospel sets us free to pursue excellence, not perfection, in the humble joy of the Lord. Wise parents, when they're disciplining their children, afterwards tell them, come close to me. Let me love you and hug you. We have a king and priest, a savior who came to be close to us. And so we can live by grace. We can live with margin. We can live with humble joy and acceptance of our many flaws. You know, each of us is much more than the worst thing we have ever done. God sent Jesus to be perfect for us so that we don't have to be. Jesus is peace for the restless, power for the powerless, perfection for the woefully imperfect. Let us then with confidence run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful for your Son, for your son who made a final sacrifice for sins, for a priestly king who reigns and intercedes to give us peace, 
who reigns with power, who strengthens us, and who satisfies all requirements of perfection. We're so grateful for Jesus, our priestly king. And I pray for us that as we go into a new week, we walk with that joy and that freedom, that hope that comes from our dear Lord and Savior. We pray in his precious name. Amen.